You're listening to Level Up with Melissa Zalouf from Iron Source. So welcome back, everyone. I'm Melissa Zalouf, and you're listening to Level Up, the podcast for people who love making, growing, and of course, playing mobile games. Today, I'm here with Philip Black, founder at Game Economics Consulting and co-host of the Deconstructor of Fun podcast, which is one of my favorite podcasts out there. I'll um, stop you. <laughs> This is back in the day when we launched Level Up. I think Deconstructor Fun was one of the only other podcasts out there that was kind of like covering the same sort of topics. And we found a natural affinity for one another. Um, so, yes, thank you very, very much. We're very excited to have you. And thank you very much for being on the show today, Philip. Are you happy to be here? Hill? Tomato, tomato. Hmm, interesting. Let's see what comes out. Um, so <laughs> today um, we're here to uh, talk about, and it's actually funny, we're working on a session on um, behavioral economics right now and how it applies in game, unrelated to this podcast. So I feel like I've been living in this world a little bit, but we're here to talk about game economics um, and also sort of looking at it from the lens or through the lens of Roblox. But maybe let's start off um Actually, just a little bit about you, maybe, sort of like two minutes on your background. Oh, boy. Um, well, I thought I was going to be a real economist at some point. Everyone I looked up to when I was studying in university was economists, and it seemed like the natural thing to do. I had a professor that encouraged me to drop out. And, uh, <laughs> you know, the thing about getting a PhD in, in economics is basically getting a degree in applied mathematics. And, mm-hmm. you know, plenty of time and a place for that. But I had a professor encourage me to, to take some time and consider if this is really, really wanted. And the great thing is, is if you do a PhD and you drop out, if you're far off along, you're getting a free master's degree. Yeah. Um, so just take PhD courses when you're in a master's program and see if this is something you like. So I did consulting. Uh, that was about as much fun as watching paint dry. And I started playing a lot more games. I'd always been a gamer, but I played more games and I played it with an economic lens. And once you get hooked on this stuff and you start to think about, okay, why are these loot boxes? Why are these currencies? Yeah. You wanted to start to solve all these puzzles. I started writing about it. I started spending more time writing than I was doing my real world job. And one thing leads to another. And I find myself moving from from Washington, D.C. to Los Angeles to work for Scopely. And from there, uh, you you get further and further uh, down the rabbit hole and you get more and more addicted. To gaming or to economics? Uh, to, to game economics. <laughs> I think I think it fits somewhere just just right in the middle. It's something that I think we're all still trying to figure out. I mean, that's part of what I did going into consulting was just trying to rally some people around what is it um, that that is game economics. There mm-hmm. was Giannis a really long time ago who was hired by Valve. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He started this blog on uh, a blog. He, he was hired by Gabe, who's, who's the founder of Valve. Gabe had read some of his written work. Uh, he was a tra- very traditional economist, and he kind of came in and didn't really know what to do at Valve, and Valve didn't really know what to do with him. But they knew that they had really interesting problems that perhaps a traditionally trained economist might be able to help with. They had a marketplace. They had auction houses. They had floating prices. They had these these crates in the Team Fortress 2 economy. And like most people who, who kind of start these blogs, he got around three posts out, and then he kind of... Uh, he kind of split, and then he ended up being the Greek finance minister during the Eurozone crisis. But I think a lot of people, when that came out, were like, oh my god, wow, there's an economist doing games. This makes so much sense. Why aren't there more people doing it? And I, I think we've started to see, it's been slow, but I think we started to see a, a trickling of more traditionally trained economists starting to take on games and trying yeah. to add value in, in a variety of ways that I know we can. Yeah. Oh, totally. Um, I'm actually, th- this is one of sort of the things, I'm not a classic true gamer but this game economies 
um, were one of the things that sort of really fascinated me when I first kind of, this has been a while, but got into this industry. And I was like, this is, it's, and also behavioral economics specifically and how that play, that it's a kind of like a perfect fit there also. It's just fascinating because it, it marries a lot of different things because I'm also terrible at maths, but like terrible. Um, I barely, I wanted to sort of like take the like lower level um, maths sort of like mandatory maths module that you have to do when you're 16 in England. And my parents were like, absolutely not. Um, just about scraped by before, ha very happily giving it up at 16. But there is something sort of, the way that economics applies in games is also just so irrevocably sort of wound up with people and play and psychology um, that it makes it sort of really fascinating, also accessible to a, a real noob like me. Anyway, why don't you give us sort of like the the 101, the basics of uh, of game economics and, and well, I think you've done game economists a little bit, but um, the, the brief description of what a game economist does day to day. So I think the, the key question I always get is, well, what's the difference between a game economist and a game economy designer? And there's certainly a Venn diagram that has those things overlap. Game economists tend to have a more traditional training in economics, as we were talking about. They tend to understand things like the principal agent problem. They understand things like perfect competition. They understand, you know, the shape of demand curves, uh, you know, why they slope downward, why supply curves slope upward when supply curves don't slope upward. They have a lot of training in traditional economic thinking, and they also have the econometrics package. So they have the empirical package about how we go out and measure things, how we estimate things how we might run experiments, how we might set them up in the proper way. So they have this really awesome tool set, both from a theory perspective of trying to describe problems. And I think they have also this really powerful kind of data science package around the, empir the empirical approach. The thing that game economists are trying to do is figure out how to marry those things together into analyzing games and how to understand them. And we've done this, we've done this in other industries. So there was one economist um, and very, very brazen human being who described economists as shooting, shooting with guns and cannons while other disciplines shot with arrows, <laughs> um, just in terms of kind of the, the firepower that comes with that. Mm -hmm. And so I think that the question is, is, well, how can we take like the traditional view of economics, the, the things that are staples, um, you know, people respond to incentives, optimal decisions are made at the margin. If we can take a lot of those principles and apply them to games, what are the insights that we could glean from that? I think that's a very different approach than a traditional game economy designer. I think game economy designers have an incredible tool set in and of themselves, and I've learned a lot from game economy designers myself. But I think it's a question of trying to take that traditional approach and see what we can't learn about games. And we've done this in other industries. Economists have gone into things like sociology. You know, my, my personal intellectual hero is a gentleman named Gary Becker, who won the Nobel Prize in economics. For a lot of his work on discrimination, for his work on marriage, for his work on crime, his paper on crime is just absolutely beautiful the way he describes, you know, okay, how, how can we predict, um, you know, the level of crime somewhere? Well, it's the probability of being caught times like what is the, you know, the size of the punishment. It's a very simple model, but it's predictive, it's informative, it's descriptive. Okay, if we take that type of thinking, how could we get more insights about how games are constructed? And I think that's kind of the approach that economists start with. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's like a one-to-one -one, um, between real-world economies and virtual economies? Not at all. <laughs> not, not at all. You know, I, I think, again, like sometimes economists can get pigeonholed into finance. And, you know, as we were just talking about with Gary Becker, it's, it's really a tool set to analyze the world around us mm -hmm. to understand how people, how people respond to incentives or 
you know, more traditionally, there was a definition that was given in the 1930s that the economists have really rallied around, which is really about studying human behavior as a function in which we have, you know, unlimited needs and wants and limited means to be able to fulfill them. And so how, how we make that rationing decision is kind of what economists are trying to examine. How from a menu of almost unlimited options that we ration um, our choices. And so I think that's very different when we get into the virtual world, or at least how, how economists are kind of painted in into studying the real world. We tend to think of prices as being really important, mm-hmm. that prices give us a lot of information about supply and demand. They give us a lot of information about relationships. And in most virtual economies, we don't have real prices, right? We don't have prices in the traditional sense where they're a function of supply and demand. Usually they're set at a fixed level. And that to me is really the big difference. And I think the shock for a lot of economists when they come into games is like, oh, whoa, a lot of these games don't have prices. We're going to have to go back and really kind of think about from the ground level how we can apply economics to games. Prices aren't going aren't gonna to do it for us. Do you um, sort of, do you think that there are, I don't know if this applies to, I mean, certainly wouldn't, I assume apply to real world economies but do you think there is a point at which in-game or virtual economies are sort of built and then done you sort of you build your foundation and then okay you sort of ship it and then that's it you never look at it again I, you know, I, I think you can have, a, you know, a done economy. I think, again, it, it depends on, on what we consider a, an economy or, you know, even a game economy. I think when I take the traditional definition of economics and think about how we apply to games, again, trying to kind of build this from the ground up, it's, again, thinking about how players ration because they have they have limited resources in games and they need to make decisions on, on how they ration their limited resources. And we need to think about also what they're maximizing with those limited resources. And a lot of times they're maximizing progression. They're maximizing how fast they can, they can get into games, um, how far they can progress. And so when I think about some of the games which have really compelling economies that haven't been touched in a really long time, I think about something like Settlers of Catan. Like that's a board game that has, uh, you know, what, you know, traditional amount of currency. It's got rationing. Um, it's got players making a lot of economic decisions. You know, that's a game that hasn't had a balance update in a very long time. Um, you know, that to me is a game economy that we might be considered, we might be able to say done. I think in the long run, though, if you want to be able to make money and you want to be able to continue to grow these things, then then you absolutely need to be updating your game economy, injecting with content. But in a lot of cases, that rule set can remain static, right? You can keep the rule set constant. You can just inject content into that economic system and you can you can get pretty far. Um, examples of virtual economies or in-game economies that are killing it, like game economy hero. I, I go back to, to probably two examples that have really stood the test of time. Uh, one is Clash of Clans, and I think that you know that, that's a that's a game I think almost everyone everyone knows when it when it blew up. And I think the other is Candy Crush, and I think each of them have really interesting parables about why they've survived so long. And to me, the case of Clash of Clans is really interesting because the bedrock of that game's monetization is consumables. And what you're able to do in Clash of Clans is that you generate troops. Um, you know, you have a little base, you can go in, um, you have a selection of troops that you can generate, and then it takes you know so long for those troops to become available for you to raid other villagers. And what you can do is you can spend money to accelerate those troops. You can, instead of waiting, spend a little bit of gems. Now, when you go to these other villages and you attack, the troops are then gone afterwards. So they're they're consumables in some sense. Mm-hmm. And the thing that's really beautiful about that is that it's almost an infinite money pit. So I can just sit there. I can generate troops. I can attack villages. Then I can go back to my base. I can regenerate the troops. I can spend more money to accelerate them. And I can kind of continue this loop almost infinitely. And that to me is really beautiful. Uh, having an infinite money pit, an infinite consumable money pit also makes something very sustainable. I think in the case of Candy Crush, it is, uh, you know, they, they have consumables, but but again, it's it's not a real consumable. And when I talk to developers, we usually get into this debate where we think like XP packs 
are consumables. And, and they're really not because they're a medium of exchange towards something else. In the case of XP packs or boosters and Candy Crush, they are a medium of exchange towards more progression. You're consuming levels and they're a finite number of levels. But I think what's beautiful about Candy Crush is that the content pipelines are so clear. They know that to be able to continue retention, they just need to extend the amount of levels that are in a match three game. And that's in many cases, the meta of match three and has been for a long time is like, I need to make more levels. I need to make more levels. Because of course, when players get to the, the last of the levels that you have in the game, they, they tend to churn. So a lot of it is really thinking about kind of that content pipeline and making more levels. But everything else is rather stable, right? You can have the same monetization mechanics and Candy Crush, and they largely have for the last 10 years. You have boosters, you have extra moves, and you have lives. And all of those things just let you progress faster than you might otherwise progress. So I think that to me has been an economy that's been sustainable. It's been around for 10 years. Both of them have been around. They've stood the test of time. They've certainly added mechanics to our point earlier about a game economy being done. They certainly certainly added mechanics, but I think by and large, they're, they're sustainable. Speaking of other sort of like landmark Maybe that's a bit of a big word, but landmark uh, virtual economies. Um, let's laser in maybe on on Roblox, um, which is something you, you've spoken quite something. It's a company you've spoken about quite extensively. Do you first of all let's maybe start? I mean, I think everyone's familiar, but let's do sort of like a one hundred and one on the virtual economy or the eco, the sort of like oh, what is it? economy ecosystem of Roblox um, and how it works. So I think the story of Roblox can be divided into three different areas. I think there are developers, there are players, and I think there's this new content category they've been building, which is creators. So I think to talk about just developers and players, the best way to approach it would be with a simple story. So what happens is that a player gets onto the Roblox platform, the app, or whether or not they're playing it on PC or Xbox and very soon PlayStation, and they have a variety of experiences that they can choose to go into. And those experiences are developed by third parties. They're developed by you know, kids. They're developed by teenagers. They're developed by professional studios. They've built them in a proprietary engine that Roblox has provided them. And when a user goes into that platform, let's say a game like Adopt Me, that's an experience they have on the platform, um, you might be able to sell pets. The developer might sell pets in Adopt Me. And so what happens is that the user will say, okay, well, I want that pet. And it's priced uh, potentially in, in Robux, which is a platform-wide currency that players will exchange real-world money for. So they'll say, okay, I want that pet. It's costed in Robux. I need to go out and spend my real money to buy Robux. And then when I have the Robux, can go and I can buy that item within the experience. Now, a lot of the experiences have intermediate currencies. So you might go in and you might buy a Robux. And then when I'm in the Adopt Me platform, there might be another currency I need to buy with that Robux to be able to buy that pet. The reason you might have that intermediate currency, it sounds complicated. It, sometimes the, the thing that's pinned you know, against uh, these virtual worlds is that you know this is, this is some company minor town mm -hmm. and we're trying to obscure prices. And that's really not the case. You know, in, in you know, a situation like Adopt Me, there might be a situation in which the developer also wants the player to be able to earn the currency without paying. So there might be a function in which part of the way you earn that currency to purchase that pet in Adopt Me is just by playing the game, and the other part might be by purchasing Robux. So you have a lot more flexibility when you have an intermediate currency. And so what happens is you make that purchase, the developer gets the Robux inserted into their account, and then what that developer can do is they can go and they can cash out that Robux at a given exchange rate set by the Roblox platform for real-world money. Now, there's a very heavy platform fee here. Developers get about $1 for every $4 that are spent inside of the experience. 
but that is the basic story here is that you buy Robux, um, a player goes in, they spend them in experiences, and the developers are able to cash out. They do uh, have some engagement-based payouts, which has been more recent addition to the platform. So they do have a premium subscription product that players can subscribe to, which gives them an annuity almost. You get a given set of Roblox every single month for a fixed fee. And what Roblox has decided is if those subscribers visit your experience, you might get a small cut of that revenue, but it's a pretty small percentage of their payouts. So I think that tells us a little bit about developers and players. I think the third category that they've been spending a lot of time on is these content creators. And so what they're able to do as a content creator is that you build individual items for avatars. So there is a platform-wide avatar that you get when you sign up to the Roblox platform. It is the representation of you or however you'd like to think about it. And what you can do as a content creator is you can create hats or dances or shirts, and then you can sell them on the platform. Robux or Roblox will certainly take a fee, but also you as a creator will be able to take some of the fees from that purchases. So you you mentioned the the fee twice now, um, and it, obviously you know this, it, it makes sense they're they're enabling this entire experience. But what do you think is it about Roblox and their implementation right of of virtual economy that's made them made this ecosystem so successful right? Like it, especially if the platform fee is heavy um, and and also sustainable so far. So I think there's there's two ways to answer that question. I think one is the supply side. So they've made a proprietary engine that's easy to use. It's very easy to publish an experience on the Roblox platform. They cover things like the operating cost of revenue or basically server costs. Server costs are a significant portion of many high fidelity HD experiences. I used to work on Battlefield. I can tell you from personal experience that server costs, getting that bill every month was sticker shock. Sticker shock and how much it takes to run a private server for a game like Battlefield. So they cover a lot of those costs. They cover moderation. They cover payment processing. They cover a lot of things that you might not expect as a developer that you have to put up with. So I think on, on one hand, they kind of have the supply side sorted. But I think the far more important part of this is the demand side, is that they have 250 million users on the Roblox platform. And where there are users that have wallets, uh, developers will follow. If people are willing to spend, then people will create experiences for them. And that to me is the most important part is that they're able to have a very large amount of players, a player base that is willing to spend. Do you, slightly off topic, but thinking about user motivation here, do you think that there is something different about what motivates a user to buy in, spend money in Roblox versus in another kind of, I want to say more classic or traditional game, but in another game? Is there something specific about what and how you're buying in Roblox and who you are there? Or is it the same? So I think monetization can take on a variety of forms even within Roblox because, again, Roblox is just a platform. That's one thing they make clear over and over and over again is that Roblox is a platform. They don't they don't want the platform to make a lot of choices for you in terms of genre, um, in terms of experience. They've done everything in their power to make sure that the platform can support a wide variety of things. And so I think, you know, why would you make a purchase inside of a game in Roblox versus another game? Well, I think those reasons can be just as diverse because those experiences within Roblox and those experiences without outside Roblox can be just as diverse. Yes, they have the cosmetics angle. I think if there's anything that might be a little more specific to Roblox is that you you have a platform-wide avatar and that avatar is your identity. And I think there is something to, to walking around with your avatar and it being, you know, a symbol of who you are. What do you think sort of, speaking of other games, can learn from or take from Roblox to sort of fuel their own uh, growth? 
I think that's a tough one because there's so much on the Roblox platform that's very specific to Roblox. Mm -hmm. Sometimes when I go onto the Roblox platform, it can it can feel almost like a, a hyper casual studio. <laughs> so there's just a lot of games which mm -hmm. are being released very rapidly that die out very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. And there are some games that tend to survive, but even those games, they don't have the same content pipeline as they have in a traditional game. A lot of players on Roblox almost play it like a feed where there's a series of games that they're going back to over and over again. And then when the content's out in that game, they'll go on to the next one. It's not expected that a given game is going to suck up all the player's experience on the Roblox platform. So I think there's, it can be tough to draw the lessons out of Roblox for individual developers. I think the, the key lesson I would really take away is how driven the executive team has been in driving their vision of, of building a platform. That, that to me is what I keep coming back to when I go through a lot of the archives and I hear a lot of the leaders at Roblox speak. They're not, they're not games people. I think that's the other thing we've, we've dunked a lot at, on as games people is that tech people just don't understand games. They haven't succeeded. Uh, you know, we always like to point to the huge failures like Google. But at the end of the day, you're like, Roblox was built by tech people. They were not games people. They were engineers. And it took them 10 years to build this platform. And it was a lot of failure. But at the end of the day, they were they were driven by the tech piece, not really the game piece. The game piece. The game was the means to an end on an end in and of itself. Yeah. And I, I think we've started to see that even more now, right? They're talking about dating on Roblox. So they're talking a lot about different experiences. They're really, again, I think Metaverse has been... Has been um, has been taken and, and, and beaten by by venture capitalists and a lot of the Web3 community. But if there's anyone who's making a real shot at kind of building a larger ecosystem that's not just about games, Roblox is the closest to it. Well, so you have anticipated my next question, um, but I'm, I'm not going to double click on that because I feel like it will take us down a little like Web3 metaverse rabbit hole. <laughs> one, of, one of the ways, at, talking about monetization on Roblox, right? Uh, one of the ways they've monetized is through sort of like billboards and, and banner ads inside the, the platform. They feel sort of like more like product placement in a way than, than traditional game ads. Do you think that that's something... And I can almost anticipate your answer, but I'm not going to, because let's see what you say. Do you think it's something that you could borrow and take into mobile games? So I would say EA's tried this, right? We, EA tried this way back in the day, the idea that you were going to put virtual banners in like Burnout Paradise. And it, it just really never went anywhere. I think this is a little bit different. So on one hand, they, they do have those billboards that you were talking about, right? So Walmart can go out and they can put an ad on a billboard inside of an experience. I think the thing that they also have, which is more interesting to me, is portal ads. So what you do with a portal ad is that you have that billboard, but underneath that billboard is a portal inside of uh, or, or to an advertiser's experience. So you can go from one game to another by interacting in this, this kind of virtual space. That to me is a lot more interesting than the image ads. And I think there's a lot more that we could learn from that. I mean, it's it's actually very similar to Hypercasual, going back to that comparison, where Hypercasual buck trades a lot of traffic. And the, when you have an ad like that, you also get direct response, which is a really key component of this. So I know that I put this builder board up, a user went into the portal, then they went into the advertiser's experience, and then perhaps they spent some money inside of the advertiser's experience, or even not even just the advertiser, or you know, it could be another developer that, that's put an ad on it. It may not just be Walmart, it may just be someone like AdoptMe who wants to get more people into the AdoptMe game. And when you have that, you're able to have attribution. When you have attribution, then you can make that fundamental calculation we know that we're all built around. Mm -hmm. uh, LTV minus UA equals profit. So I have a lot more faith in portal ads. I think that's a really interesting angle. I think the idea of having direct response there and having more targeting is pretty interesting. There's already the notion that someone might see a different portal ad. 
than someone else, even if it's in the same physical location inside of a world. So you can have some sense of personalization or targeting that I'm sure is coming to the platform. But I'd say by and large, I'm a little skeptical of the image ads, but those portal ads, I, I think there might be something to that. Well, yeah, if you can crack the holy grail of attribution, then. <laughs> I, th I think there's there, there's actually one other point here that I think is pretty interesting, which is that a lot of the ways that Roblox developers are making money right now is not necessarily through someone purchasing Robux and then spending that Robux in their platform. It's actually through uh, third-party off-platform brand deals. So mm -hmm. a Roblox developer might get hired by, again, Walmart or by Vans or by you know Mattel to go out and build, let's say, a Barbie experience or a Vans experience. And what they're looking for is people to basically interact with the brand. It's, it's brand advertising. Mm -hmm. and that happens all off of the Roblox platform, which I think is pretty interesting. But that's been a pretty significant revenue stream for a lot of these developers is brands just looking to get in on this market and advertise in a, a unique way. And in that case what they're paid by Walmart, Mattel, whoever, is then rev shared with Roblox or not? If there's a payment that happens inside of the experience, then Roblox will make a platform. But many of these brands aren't looking for direct monetization in the experiences. They just want people to spend time, you know, skateboarding in a van's experience. That just helps the brand identity. And Roblox is not getting a cut of that. Right. So that's pure sort of like net developer or creator revenue sort of enabled by the Roblox platform or not platform, but the world, right? I don't want to call it metaverse. Um, <laughs> it makes two of us. Yeah, a, a, a cutoff, which is interesting. Um, okay, we, we've, we've been nice to Roblox for a while. Now let's be critical because uh, obviously it's not perfect. Nobody in, and no company is. What are some of the criticisms that people will make of, of Roblox um, or, or claims they'd make against its, its longevity? So I think, I think there's kind of two things that have been levied against Roblox. I think one is kind of the cultural criticism about whether or not the Roblox platform is healthy for kids. If you look at the monetization that happens on Roblox, it's almost exclusively pay to win in loot boxes. There's a lot of RNG that happens on the Roblox platform and no one talks about it. And again, this, this goes back to Western monetization and a lot of the criticisms against gameplay affecting items being monetized, driven by a very small community of Redditors who grew up in a, a, a time and a place that had a different form of monetization. And Roblox is basically not subject to any of that criticism, just like Web3 has not been subject to any of that criticism because that audience does not play this game. There's been some people who have started to point this out. I think it's a long run risk for the platform as if this starts to get a little bit more regulatory steam. But right now it's been by and large kind of throw, thrown to the side, just not that important. People, people don't seem to be uh, raising hell about it. I think the other piece is kind of the financial company risk. So they've gone public. They've been public for a little while now. The question is whether or not they can age up. So the majority of users, at least when they launched the platform, were under 13. I believe it was around a little over 50% were under 13 when they launched the platform. We you know we fast forward to the most recent quarter and they have been able to age up the, the users. Now I believe there's around... Um, you know, more than 50% of users are actually over 13 rather than previously 50% of users being under 13. The, the question has always been when they're aging up users on the platform is whether or not they're acquiring new users who are older or whether or not those users who are younger are, have been continued to be retained on the platform. I, I don't think it's an irrelevant distinction. I actually think it's, it's really important on how they're continuing to grow. But at the end of the day, that's a really big risk is whether or not they're going to continue to be able to do that. 
when you look at their MAU, which is incredible, again, I just want to point out it's 250 million monthly active users on the Roblox platform. For comparison, the United States is about 330 million people. And we start to look at Steam, Xbox, and PlayStation, the monthly active users of those three platforms combined, it's nearly equivalent almost to Roblox. Roblox is, is right in there and competitive with those platforms. So just the, the absolute scale of this thing is the thing that I think surprises most people who haven't been paying attention to it. The question is, is like, will they continue to grow those 250 million MAU? And they've been making every single play they can from a technology perspective to be able to do that. They've been trying to add more mature experiences to the platform. They've been updating those avatars. I think a lot of people have the brand image stuck in their head of that hero shot where all these blocky characters are in different avatar outfits. And it feels it feels like it's for a younger audience. Mm -hmm. And they've introduced a lot more sophistication to how those avatars have looked. They've added a lot more on the engine side to make sure they can support more mature experiences. There was this game Frontlines, which blew up a couple of years ago. This was basically Call of Duty on Roblox. Everyone's just like mind blown. Oh my God. And you can still play it, by the way, right now. You could go on your phone. You can get this Frontlines game up and going very quickly. The problem is that that's just it didn't do anything. Just it didn't retain that many users because there was a mismatch between the audience, which tends to be a little bit younger, and you know, a Call of Duty style game, which tends to be a little bit older. And and the problem right now is that Fortnite is putting the pressure on them. Fortnite is is really making them sweat because Fortnite has always been the place where once you're done with Roblox, you might graduate to Fortnite, which is a little bit more mature. It has more realistic guns. It's considered, you know, what you might say is a real game. It's, it's not a kiddie game. And so I think that's really the competition that they're starting to face is that if Fortnite really carves out a lot of where Roblox is trying to age up, if they can really compete for those users, then Roblox could be in serious trouble just in terms of trying to hit those growth targets that they've set for themselves. You graduate from Roblox and, and move to Fortnite. Uh, <laughs> um, d- zooming there's out. A pipeline. There's a pipeline. Um, thank God. Um, zooming out, also because we are hitting a little bit time, um, as a game economist, and either from the perspective of, of Roblox or not, what do you think, if anything, is going to sort of change in the industry moving forward? Um, are, is there sort of like some kind of unexplored territory in game economies that maybe was sort of like a little bit pioneered by the Roblox example that's going to arise or is it more about sort of like tweaking and fine tuning and optimizing what we currently have? The thing I've been big on, even at the beginning of this year, as kind of my prediction, and I think we're starting to see more and more evidence of this, is basically the rise of the dual skew. And you see this with Roblox too. And what I mean by the dual skew is a single experience that's deployed on both mobile and HD, so PC and consoles. So you can have your Roblox platform on your phone, and you can also have the same Roblox experience with your same account with the same experiences on your PC as well. About 20% of Roblox's experiences are done on PC and about 80% on mobile. So it's still a mobile, you know, mobile dominant platform. But I think we're starting to see more and more companies do this dual skew model. So Genshin Impact was a, a game that succeeded both on mobile and on HD. And we've started to see more developers take their games and actually port it to HD. So you saw Fall Guys which was from Scopely. That is a game that's not only on mobile, but there's a Steam version of this as well. You've seen Tencent, the Chinese publisher, take a lot of their games. And since they're built in Unreal for mobile, it's much easier to port them and just dump them on Steam. Scopely, again, took Star Trek Fleet Command, which is a 4X game on mobile, and they built a really cheap PC SKU and they just deployed it. And again, you get to be able to have all those web payments yourselves because you're not going through a you know, a third-party platform. Zynga. Zynga did this with um, their most recent game, Star Wars Hunters. It's on Nintendo Switch and it's on mobile. 
uh, Supercell has announced something with uh, North America and NH development. I, I don't know where that's been. It's been a couple of years since we heard from that. But I think there's going to be more convergence between the world of HD and the world of mobile. And I think we're starting to see this in playtimes too. Mobile is the first device for a lot of people. It's the only device for a lot of these kids. I don't think they're going to go out and purchase a lot of consoles or at least at the margin, they'll purchase less consoles and less PCs than they did beforehand. And those play patterns are changing too. Because when you're playing this at home, you're playing in a set, uh, you know a, a setting in which you have much more session time. And mm -hmm. those session times mean you can have more HD-like experiences. Yes, um, or focus. It sounds ironic to say we're seeing people spend more focused time doing one thing. Um, but maybe maybe it's true. It's counterintuitive in some sense, right? I mean, normally we think about mobile games as trying to fit into people's lives, the voids. I mean, that's in many ways we describe Candy Crush is when do you play it? You play it on the subway, you play it in the elevator, you play it in that dead space. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of these HD experiences are ones that, that are not dead space. They're very much alive spaces that they take over. Right, that you want to be in, in focus, in focus zone. Um, as, as a last question, bridging out of games. Um, this is something we also uh, talk quite a lot about um, at uh, Unity. I was about to say Iron Source, but no. Um, which is kind of the, the, the connection or the bridge between games and apps. Um, because games have sort of really cracked in, games as a subcategory of apps in general, right? Have really cracked in-app economies in a way that I think many apps haven't. Also because of the, just the nature of the content, right? That they're sort of able to leverage. But at the same time, I think as apps are sort of starting to um, evolve their business models or look for additional ways to sort of monetize or drive revenue, um, we're seeing this sort of, or at least we think we're seeing a rising tide of awareness and interest on the part of many app categories out there and looking at how could they adopt sort of some of this game economy practice and apply it um, uh, to to their apps. Do you, is that just us? Do you think it's really happening? I think there's a lot of there's a lot of shades of gray in there. Um, you know, I think on one hand, you know, to give you an example, um, you know, there's a there's a there's a a cafe called Joe and the Juice, which is, which is in a lot of the Nordic areas. It's in some areas in North America as well. And they have a program in which you earn points. Um, and then once you earn enough points, you can get certain levels and getting certain levels gets you certain rewards. Uh, Starbucks has something similar. They have a rewards program. When I look at systems like those, we tend to call that gamified. And in a sense, there's a lot of things which are have which have the same name, right? There are levels, there are points, you earn things, you, you get rewards. I think in many cases, those are just really sophisticated loyalty programs. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, they're just rebates, right? They're, they're trying to give you some amount of money back that you spent, and they're trying to gloss it over with some of the things that almost make it look like a game, but to me, don't define games. Now, there, there's nothing wrong with that. I think game designers can really help out with that. There's a lot of things that I think we do well in games that all apps should adapt. To give you a simple example, we're really good at tightening the loop between you completing an action and you getting a reward. So mm -hmm. you've played Marvel Snap, you know, you're able to complete a mission. When I go back to the home screen, it lights up the mission. Then I tap on that mission and then I get XP. I can see the XP animating into my level and then I, my collection level goes up. Then I tap my collection level. I can see it. There's a very tight cause effect reward loop where you do a thing, you get another thing. And that to me is really compelling. And even if you don't have, you know, a real, a real game economy, you can still do a lot of those best practices. I do think there are other apps out there which are more sophisticated and are still starting to build real economies. Reddit's doing a lot of really interesting stuff. Tinder's doing a lot of interesting stuff. It's not just about a rebate on rewards program. It's really about 
having some sort of propulsion loop. You you did a thing, there was a response, that response propels you to get something else. That propulsion of getting something else lets you get something else again. That something else you got again propels you to get another response. So I think there's there's a sharp dividing line between some of the loyalty rebate programs and then I think some of the more sophisticated apps which have that propulsion loop that I think is more common in games. Mm-hmm. I think it's not... Um... It's, I think, maybe not an accident you, you talked about Tinder. I think very often we see that dating apps are some of the sort of first places you see hints of what you see in games turn up um, in apps. Um, anyway, <laughs> fascinating chat. Thank you very, very much. Um, I'm co- I'm sort of cognizant of time because now we're, hit, we're hitting the nearly 40-minute mark where I said we wouldn't go. Um, but I sort of feel like we could do a whole other session. Um, maybe we will. Either way, thank you very, very much for being on the show today. Uh, Phil. I'm going to go with Phil. Philip sounds like Prince Philip from Sleeping <laughs> um, and- I'm a two-eller. There's a big debate in the Phil community. The one-ellers and the two-ellers. The one-ellers and the two, and you're a two-eller. Um, yeah, so thank you very much, and thank you everyone else as always. For this. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.